We had worked on trust with a lot of people before that were kind of like partners or recommendations. So we made the mistake of working in trust with this company. After the project was finished, the company essentially like sold the company to somebody else and then just wrote us out, didn't pay us anything out of that. So we pretty much lost four months of work and a couple hundred thousand dollars. Choose not to live in a world of filters. Realize your mistakes. Set the foundation for your success. Get some wins. Knucklehead Podcast. All right, well, hey, welcome to another edition of Knucklehead Podcast. You got with you today, the Knucklehead Steven. I got a special treat. I say that all the time whenever we have guests coming on. In particular, this is a treat. I've got somebody who's been a mover and shaker in the tech space for, for some time. And I say the tech space, I mean the tech sales side. If you're an entrepreneur and you're you know always looking for, for innovative thinkers, you realize that you know it's a small group of people that know a lot of people. So it's a lot of like small groups that are tangently kind of connected with each other. And if you ever want to have a conversation with somebody who's very well versed at solutions, solution thinking, probably because he's been <laughs> been made familiar uh, with other people who've screwed up along the way, or even maybe some of the screw ups along, uh, along the way for himself, Dallar is a great person to talk with. So uh, Dallar Hudson uh, is an entrepreneur. Actually, he's doing some things on the employment space now in tech sales, but I came to know him as an entrepreneur. I don't know very many people who run a, well, I don't know if we want to jump into the details here, but run people who have access to ammunition in certain parts of the country. It's pretty cool <laughs> for him to be able to move and shake and do the things that he's doing out in Virginia, or at least at the time. I don't know if that's, that's kind of come to an end, right? It's coming to an unfortunate end. <laughs> unfortunate end is right. All right. Well, Dallair, man, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking some time, buddy. How in the hell are you? I've been doing good. Like I said, I was uh, we were fortunate enough to meet up about two weeks ago or a week ago on the last call. I was in Mexico for the last almost two months. I've been working remote, so I decided to take advantage of the whole remote situation. Went to Mexico City with two weeks worth of clothes. Ended up staying for almost two months. I'm actually in go. the process of applying for a Mexican residency now. I figure, why not? It'll, it'll never hurt. I might need to jump across the border one day. There you go. Well, that's cool. Where, whereabouts in Mexico are we talking? Mexico City, straight capital. It's, it's kind of un, okay. un, not necessarily unknown, but a lot of people you don't know how that. big it is. Mexico oh. City has actually got uh, more residents than New York City, but more land than L.A. So it's, it's massive in comparison to what people think a Mexican city would actually be. No, it is. It is massive. Uh, Titlan, I think is what they call it. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but I remember back uh, back in the day, that was a very high sought after place of a lot of historical significance there to that city, especially in this particular hemisphere. When you talk about North America and big, big cities and a lot of uh, a lot of movers and shakers, there's a lot of some great things going on there in the tech space, too. There's a property management organization. I think they're in the commercial lending space, uh, Kasai. It's out that way. I mean, it's it's phenomenal what's going on there, and you, it's just right. It's just right up the street. When I say right up the street, it's it's a it's a ways away. You got to hop on a plane to get over to get there. Um, you know, I'm talking to you from Texas, and <laughs> you're obviously in the East Coast, so it's almost like it's a whole other country for for Texas. So, or at least Texas is compared to the rest of the country. So, anyway, Dallier, I appreciate you taking some some time to talk with us, and so we'll, we'll just jump right in. You know, when I started this podcast, it was a it was an opportunity to talk about some things that we had screwed up along the way. And when I say we, I mean me. You know, I built and managed sales teams. I've been a kind of card carrying sales rep for some time. Built some small businesses. Realized that you know the biggest growth opportunities are associated typically with things that you screw up. In my opinion, if you screw up or you make mistakes or you didn't adequately plan ahead of time, 
things aren't always going to work out the way that you want them to. And when things go wrong, that's typically an opportunity to uh, to make either some slight corrections or uh, come away with a life lesson. So uh, that's really what the genesis behind Knucklehead Podcast was. And I, we started talking to other entrepreneurs and other folks who were sales leaders or other folks who were building organizations. And they found it was a lot easier to talk about their screw-ups than it was about the successes that they had. They're used to talking about successes to maybe customers or, or prospects, but everybody that I talked with always had this, man, let me tell you about a time where I said this to a customer. We actually had somebody who came in, uh, and you'll appreciate this. They worked in the HR space. They went in to go through the interview process. The person who just left the interview was asking the woman during the interview when they were due, but they weren't pregnant. So <laughs> it was kind of dicey. The challenge that we run into in that case is the person who came in to fix that problem knew the risk that the company had. So he kind of knew the players. He knew how to navigate that. Can you think of a time, you know, in your corporate career or even your entrepreneurship type category where you were like, oh boy, I just stepped in it or I just saw somebody step in it and <laughs> it was kind of an uncomfortable mistake that you could learn from that could help you save some some heartache as you move throughout your career. Oh yeah, I actually can. This is, this is the most recent one, I guess, in the, in the ammo space. So ammo is not the only random entrepreneurship area that I jumped into, but a prime example is kind of backtracking to how I got into it. I just happened to go to the gun range a lot. I actually just came from the gun range and uh, right as the pandemic was starting, I was still going about every week. And the owner of the gun range said, hey, like, I see you come in here every week. Where are you getting all this ammo from? And I said, hey, I, I just have a bunch of stuff at home and I just enjoy it. I, I you know, buy a little bit every month. And he's like, hey, you know, there's a, a gun show going on in Richmond. I said, I heard about it. I have no idea. He said, have you ever thought about selling some of that ammo? I think that I probably paid around 15 to 16 cents around at the time, like in, in bulk. And I was thinking like, oh, maybe, you know, 30 cents around or something like that. And the guy said, no, they're selling it for about 70 cents around. You should go down there. So that was kind of the catalyst of my idea. I was like, oh, I've got a couple thousand. I'll go down and, you know, sell some. Never ended up selling me at the, the gun show, but I, you know, posted some listings on the gun brokers, the Craigslist version of, of gun stuff and such, and had some customers in. It started just with, you know, 100 rounds there, 100 rounds, you know, here. And I find over a mistake that kind of catalyst to grow in the business was uh, I'm, I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. At the time, I was in Arlington. So I'm right in the area of the border of D.C., Maryland. Also, customers coming down from like Philadelphia. And I had a group of guys show up in the most beat down looking car ever. I only carry an amount of ammo that I'm going to sell to an individual. Something could happen. And uh, they played like a perfect game. One of them happened to pick up two boxes and drop a box. And instinctively, I looked to try to grab it. And when I looked back up the box with my stuff, there's something missing in there. I noticed it was moved around a little bit. Didn't say anything. I just went through with the sale. Uh, as they walked to the car, they got in the car. And I, I looked in my box. And I was like, I know there's some stuff missing. I walked over to the guy and said, hey, you know, did one of your friends happen to pick up a box or anything like that? Both of them kind of had this sketchy look on their face and were kind of giving me the like, oh, we wouldn't take anything from you, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of looked at them and I had to make the decision. It's like, I know that I have a gun on me. They likely have a gun on them. They look sketchy. Yes, I may have had the first draw if I decided to draw, but that's the situation I don't want to be in, especially, you know, coming out of the military, living in, you know, a nice area of the city and stuff. Now I don't need any problems like that. So that was kind of like the catalyst where I said, I'm just going to stop selling to individuals. 
And I ended up calling a gun store, looking up firearms trainers. And I said, hey, I'm going to only try to sell to legitimate businesses versus individuals because it only takes one person to, you know, do something wrong with the ammo that I gave them for them to be like, hey, where'd you get this stuff from? And it comes back to me. And they come to my house and they're like, hey, some guy sold me, you know, 300 rounds of ammo out the back of his car in a parking lot. That's not how I wanted to go down. You understand the so optics it- <laughs> associated with that. You're like, all right, let me back up just a second. Back up just a second. Hold up. And exactly. Probably a great learning experience for you. So <laughs> good on you, Dallier. Well, yeah. you, t- you touched on something that I, th- uh, that I want to hover over and maybe drill into a little bit. Um, you spent some time in the military. And for those of you who are actually checking it out, checking this out. Uh, on video and not necessarily on audio. If you want to go subscribe, Knucklehead Podcast, wherever you can get your podcast downloads from. But for those of you who like watching this full length on video, we'll notice that you got something going on with your, you got a patch over your eye. Uh, yes. <laughs> tell, tell people what's tell people what's going on there. And uh, is it attached to military service or, or what happened there? There is no special story behind this. Uh, I hit my head in a vehicle at some point. My vision went blurry in the army and it healed. And the doctors had no idea what happened. A couple of years later, I started getting double vision in my eye again. And the doctors to this day have no idea exactly what's wrong, but it causes double vision and the eye patch is just to mitigate it until they either 100% decide on what the issue is or find a way to fix it or decide I'll, I'll get surgery. But it's, it's fully fully under the VA, so I'm, I'm still getting some kind of benefit out of it. But I, they really have no true idea what happened other than like you may have had a really bad uh, uh, concussion one day and it messed something up. How do, you, how do you deal with uh, working in you know this two-dimensional world where we're constantly looking at screens and talking to folks? How do you deal with that? How does it, how does, it does it mess with your uh, your vision still with one eye, or does it mess with your head like you get headaches all the time? I, I used to get headaches a little bit, but uh, now I, I don't don't even really notice it. I mean, it's, it hasn't become a factor at all. It just becomes a story where if I don't say anything, people just see the stuff behind me and think like, oh, he's probably in like some you know, war accident or something like that. If, if they never ask, I just, it never comes up. But if they ask, I'm like, nah, it wasn't anything special. No, no, no cool story. Just like I hit my head and I don't know my vision. I'm worried. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, isn't it funny how that works? Like you, there's something that is obviously different and people are like, should I ask? Should I not ask? I don't know if I should. What's the story here? Um, especially in today's world where, you know, it's, it's very easy to just look past things that, uh, you know, that quite frankly should just be called out and say, hey, man, what's going on with this? So when it comes to that story, <laughs> first of all, how did you keep your head about you when you noticed, obviously, that something was missing <laughs> and you, you're like, OK, uh, I'm selling to an individual here. They are taking advantage of me, my attention being distracted here for a certain ex- to a certain extent. How did you keep your head about you? What was it about your your background or what was it about your maybe your military training that gave you the uh, uh, the presence of mind to say, hey, listen, I, I think I'm just going to go ahead and put pause on this. I mean, honestly, I, I've, I've always just been a very low stress person in general. Nothing really bothers me. So I notice a lot of things, but I don't always say everything. So at the time, I, honestly, it's probably, you know, the worst thing to say, but I just decided, like, if anything happens, like, I'll probably have to first draw on these guys. I, I, I pretty sure I'm a better shooter and I'm much more reactive than them. I mean, I, I spent, you know, no specific time for, for combat, but, you know, 18 months running ranges every other week doing weapons training for both, you know, second ID and sometimes like the Ranger regiments up in Korea. So I'm, I'm very familiar with how I'm going to shoot my gun to the point where yeah, I don't really so. have an issue with it. And then also yep. I kind of, you know, do the quick math in my head. I'm like, if they did something, okay, I, I lost $40. Like, I'm, I'm not going to start trouble with $40 in a parking lot. 
Yep. That is a good calculation on your part. So the the level headedness there uh, and the, probably the, the exposure to uh, to weapons and not even just weapons training, but just weapons handling, uh, being at being at the range, it gave you it gave you familiarity to focus on those outside factors. I know that a lot of times when you're first around weapons, it's I don't know I don't know if you feel this, but it's awkward. It's like people not quite sure exactly how to handle the weapon, right? And sometimes it's their first time handling a weapon, so you know uh, they're not necessarily aware. Muzzle awareness is a is a big learning, you know, or or if things don't work out correctly, what corrective action to take. So there's a lot of there's a lot of idiosyncrasies associated with weapons handling. So you got a lot of exposure to it in the past that probably helped you think through things just a little bit different. So so when it comes to what got you into that, other than being maybe a little opportunistic, like you you had the ability to to identify an opportunity as an entrepreneur, you identify opportunities and you try to take advantage of them, whether through a product or service to help satisfy a need. Talk through some of your experiences relative to uh, how to identify opportunities in the past and and how does that maybe inform kind of your, your vision, so to speak, on taking advantage of opportunities in the future? Yeah. So I think that my, my kind of world mindset has always been just under the term arbitrage, geo arbitrage, global arbitrage, however you want to kind of put it that way. I traveled extensively as a kid. Uh, my dad was in the military also, so we lived everywhere. As an adult, I studied German and lived in Germany for multiple years on and off, kind of bounced around between Europe. And I've always kind of had the kind of end goal, end dream where I could make U.S. dollars and live on a different economy's money that I have a much better cost of living on. So I'm always trying to find a way to arbitrage things. I'm always looking at patterns in the market, things that you know have a, a hole where I can easily take advantage of, even if it's for a short period of time. And if it's something I can take advantage of, I'll put a bunch of energy just into that idea. I know that not every idea is going to be long term, but I know that you know in the term of say a consultant mindset, like, you know, you're trying to open a pizza restaurant, you know, that there's already a hundred pizza restaurants, but everybody's eating pizza, you know, once a week, there's still a billion dollars worth of, you know, pizza to be sold. I don't need a billion dollars. I don't need hundred percent of the market. I just need maybe 2% so I can make, you know, my, my $2 million out of it or something like that. So that's kind of how I look at the holes in the market. And perfectly with ammo, I realized that there's a very low supply of ammo. A lot of raw materials from, from Europe and different countries can't come into America. The military has currently got a, a lock on a lot of the ammo purchasing and production. Even gun stores weren't able to get ammo. Um, the also inconsistency kind of I see is that who usually runs a gun store? It's usually not a young whippersnapper or whatever they want to call him. It's usually an old guy that just loves guns. And he opens a gun store with his old collection and things like that. They don't know how technology works. They don't know, you know, how to make additional phone calls up the chain. I kind of leverage both being in sales, understanding the tech side, and just being able to, you know, generally get things happen. And I ended up getting a contract with uh, an ammo producer through the Bass Pro, kind of just calling my way up, getting a corporate account that way, and then figuring some stuff out, um, finessing a little bit of the details and making orders. And the first gun store I walked into, I came in with maybe 5,000 rounds. They bought it cash the whole thing and said hey can you get us fifteen thousand by wednesday and i kind of looked at him i said i think i can I'll, I'll i'll let you know and i think that was actually their initial way to shoot me off they're like some random guy came in and sold us ammo there's no way this is going to happen again but we're going to buy all of it and if he shows back up cool he shows back up but if not like i don't want this guy hanging around i showed back up wednesday with fifteen thousand rounds of ammo they swiped a credit card and they started the business from there. And pretty much every week they bought 
15, 10 to 15,000, and then introduced me to other gun stores, some firearms trainers, and it kind of spun off from there where I was doing at the, the most 90,000 in revenue a month for ammo. Okay. All right. So <laughs> I love that story for a couple of reasons. One, you walked through step-by-step step what most people, quite frankly, what they just, they just don't get those steps. It, it started with you being able to analyze an opportunity and then f- figuring out where you fit in. Did you, did you walk into that opportunity? I didn't hear you say it in the story of what, knowing what it was that you wanted or were you just willing to go into this as an experiment to see where, where it came? And, and you realized that you wanted to make some money along the way. Yeah, it really went into it as an ex- experiment. You know, hey, I've got excess stock. I can get rid of it. I, I don't mind getting rid of it. Once it got to a point where I didn't want to sell my personal stock anymore, I had to find it from somewhere else. And that, that was where the started making phone calls up the chains of command to figure out who I can buy ammo from and who's willing to sell it bulk. And I mean, I like some, some of the stores are, are so old school that one of the stores I went into, when the guy paid me, he wrote a check. And he had this old, like, 1998 Windows 98 computer with some old software on it that had to write the check up in the software, put these big card printouts in it, and then, like, slide it in and print the check off there. And the check was about this big. And I was kind of like, what is this? I've never seen this before. He's like, it's, it's a business check. I'm like... You know, there's there's Zelly, there's a whole bunch of other things, and this is what you give me. Even the bank was like, we don't see these very often. This is clearly like an old guy, but that's kind of how a lot of the gun stores run is with the person that's just not, you know, up to date technology wise and can't get a lot of things done. They rely on, you know, very old, outdated systems, and that was my opportunity to take advantage of the situation. So when you so let's let's talk real quick about you know economies of scale and even up the chain of command here. Let's just talk about. Uh, when you were calling up the chain of command or you were calling up the different suppliers, had you run into a lot of the same folks where there was one agri- one supplier supplying a lot of folks in your region? And then, you know, how did your competition react to you when you started to grow up to that point? Um, honestly, there's no competition. It was, surprisingly, there's absolutely no competition. Nobody at an individual level is buying that much ammo. It's usually established companies uh, wholesalers or, you know, military police departments and such. Um, anytime I called, it was more of a surprise where they're like, are you, you, you want to purchase, you know, 15,000 rounds and send it to an apartment? Like I've never got an order like that. And I said, yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Of course I would try to, you know, bake in like, Hey, you have a military background, blah, blah, blah. They really just didn't care. They were like, Hey, as long as the, is the check clears, as long as you pay us, we don't really have a problem with it right now. I, the same with uh, with with body armor. You remember that movie War Dogs? I've actually never seen War Dogs. People have told oh. me about it. I've, I've never seen it. I- if well, uh, you got plenty of things to do. Being as you know, a, a single eligible uh, uh, bachelor in your in your area, and I don't want to misspeak. So if somebody happens to listen <laughs> to this who may disagree with me, forgive me. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is simply this: if you get some time on your hands, that would make you laugh. That 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 movie, given the context of the story you just told, and that story that happened there. It, uh, it, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, Dallaire included, it's a good one. It's it, you know, competing for government contracts and then running ammunition at large scale to supply the U.S. military for former USSR. Um, supply. It was, it was, it's bizarre that it's even true, but it is, it's crazy. Crazy show. There's, there's, there's no law or anything against it in the state of Virginia. 
you can purchase and resell. It's considered just like, you know, yard sale style. The only thing that you can't do is manufacture your own to resell without licensing. So it's a complete, it's not even a loophole. It's just a complete hole in the law, a complete, like it's completely legal to do what you did or what I did, yep. but you can't do it in Maryland or DC because their laws are extremely strict. So I could pretty much capture the entire tri-state area very quickly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's cool. I, I like that you, um, I like that you look at things the way that you do and kind of analyzed what, what took place and what got you to where you were. So you were doing this at the same time that you're also hooking a jab and essentially, uh, in the cloud infrastructure type space, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but prior to even that, prior to even that, and even prior to your ammo, uh, adventure, you, you had kind of done some, some dabbling in alternative currencies, cryptocurrency, however you want to describe it. Can you talk through a little bit, some of your experiences and, and potentially some, some lessons that were painful to learn along the way as you, as you dipped into that space, obviously they're highly speculative in terms of, uh, of how people look at them now. Uh, some people look at them simply as if they are currency and they, they could replace, uh, several, you know, stores of value. I, I don't necessarily know if I want to go that, that route. You may have an opinion, but my thought process is, hey, listen, if it's increases in value, why not let it line your pocketbook at the same time? So talk through a little bit about how you identified that opportunity. Yeah, that was that was kind of another one in, in terms of all of the speculative area aside, I can understand that companies want to be part of it and they need help. So around 2016 area, I actually had a friend that ran a, a cryptocurrency hedge fund and he wanted me to invest in it in the beginning, or it was actually a friend of a friend. He wanted me to invest. And at the time I was still an army officer, he's pretty much a $50,000 buy-in. And I said, like, hey, look at me. I don't I don't have 50K sitting around to invest in this, but I'm really interested. I'm really curious. So I kind of just stuck around, learned a lot of things and realized that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that want to be part of the ecosystem that just don't have the knowledge. So I started a company startup, whatever you want to call it, that was purely on the go-to-market strategy side. We would just help companies, fintech, you know, other entrepreneurs understand the ecosystem, understand how to, you know, build a client base, understand like what what does right look like and what are customers looking like. You know, don't launch some some, you know, thing that clearly is sounds like a scam or if it's not a scam, it still sounds like a scam. And we help them build upon that. Um, just by me taking my own leave from the military and going on trips to New York, Miami, San Francisco, and going to these different conferences, I built up a, a large network of just individuals I could go to as investors to say, hey, this person's doing a project. Take a look at it. If you want to invest, you can invest that way. Um, but we actually didn't manage any cryptocurrency of our own. We only took payments in currency or payments in dollars to get the job done. Um, now, the mistakes that came out of that were, one, I truly had no idea what I was doing. This is kind of my first Did, jump into that yeah, space. Well, I, I, I got to stop you there. I got to stop you there just real quick. So <laughs> when you say mistakes, put into context, are we talking about money lost, painful, awkward experiences where you, ha- you took money from an investor and it didn't pay it out? Like, give some context here into this. Got it. For, first painful experience was where we would often work with the company with the intent that we would get paid once they go to launch. So often they don't have money up front. We'll say, hey, I want you know 5% of that initial launch. If you're gonna launch you know $2 million, something like that, we want 5% of it. And a company we worked with for about a good three or four months was um, based out of England. And after the project was finished, they kind of hyped up as like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll fly you guys out here. We'll actually finally meet up together. Company essentially like, 
halfway went dark and then found out that they sold the company to somebody else and they just wrote us out, didn't pay us anything out of that. So we pretty much lost four months of work and a couple hundred thousand dollars that we expected to be out of that. And they just sold the entire asset log. Um, that was kind of a mistake where we, we didn't know what we were doing business-wise. We didn't have correct contracts in place. Even once we had the contract reviewed by an actual lawyer, he was like, hey, this, these people are in the UK. Like, you're not going to get your money. There's really not a way that you can chase them down for something like this. And we just didn't really have proper statements of work um, in place beforehand. We had worked on trust with a lot of people before that were kind of like partners or recommendations. So we made the mistake of working in trust with this company. When it comes to your experience as an Army officer, were you an Army officer at the time or was, was this prior to your time in the service? This was still, I was doing both. I was, I'd be out in the field having to walk out of the forest to get cell phone connection to try to make a quick call. I understand. All right. Okay. So I can read between the lines there. I, I like it. Okay. So put yourself in, in maybe a listener's shoes here for a second. Okay. If I'm you and I'm active duty and I'm trying to get all of these things spun up, how critical do you think having an attorney involved in at least the ideas that you're that you're coming up with and going into execution mode, having them vet at least or at least maybe take five hundred dollars to bend the year of an attorney? I mean, do you think that that would have saved you some money? Like, wh- what's the what's the tangible lesson that you took from that experience that somebody who's in a similar set of circumstances that w- that they would uh, that they could take action on? Honestly, I I don't think a lawyer would have would have helped in that case simply because there aren't very many lawyers versed in international cryptocurrency blockchain kind of space. Uh, but a kind of a lesson I really took is if if you can't reach out and touch them, you may not want to put as much trust into the project, or you need to do a whole lot more vetting on those projects ahead of time, um, <laughs> knowing that not everybody does business the way that we do business, you know, as, as military people, as we seem to be trustworthy, not everybody does business with that. It's very likely they never intended to pay us to begin with. And they just knew that they could get a, you know, a quick one over on us. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough lesson to learn. So what we call that is we call that knucklehead moments and knucklehead moments is are really just being able to put yourself out there. And quite frankly, the mistakes that sometimes people make don't have to be painful. And then there's no lesson. The, the the lessons that you learned from not just that experience, but uh, the way that you make decisions, it's, it's led to some other opportunities. So do you think that without that experience, it would have, you know, that you, eventually you would have ran into that at some point anyway? Or or do you feel like that lesson actually helped save you some money in the long term or, or give you some lessons where you were able to leverage into an opportunity? Well, I'm, I'm good that it happened earlier than later because I, I know people that have gone through much more vetting process that I went through and still got you know, taking advantage of in business, no matter how much experience they have. Um, but ha- having it happen as early as possible gave me more knowledge of, you know, what to look out for in advance, how to ask more questions and kind of how to analyze more in general. But, but also just in the case of business, that was probably my first bigger business launch. And if, if you don't have mistakes there, you know, you have them later and your business completely collapse. If you have them early, you can always bounce back from it very easily and learn from those and implement those in other businesses. So I'd say just the trend of trying period is better than not trying kind of, I mean, that's, that's kind of a given. Well, I mean, if there's any proof positive, at least in just that statement, it's quite frankly, your career. So what's the best way, like, let's, let's, let's talk about maybe some, some day forward type activities here. So like, what's the best way somebody's listening to this and they're going, man, this guy's got a lot of, 
experiences, ranging from leading soldiers, you know, leading, uh, leading himself as a, you know, as a, as an officer in the military, all the way up to leading projects that maybe didn't pan out the way that he wanted to, to projects creating 90k a month in in ammo sales. How did that help shape the way that you you'd use the the phrase ask questions, right? So how do how do you then develop your bucket of questions or or do you have a bucket of questions that you pull from to, to get to either vet people in or out? And then indirectly, how would somebody, if they wanted to kind of come up with their own set, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So you could potentially help them craft those types of questions as well. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, my kind of question scheme goes more into asking how much in detail the person knows their own project. I kind of found that often people don't have their own business plan. If they don't have their own business plan or can't voice it very well, that that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have good intentions, but it often to me means that they might not have good intentions. If their plan is kind of just haphazard, they may be looking just to get, you know, paid off of it. They may not be trying to help the customer kind of like, I guess the Amazon AWS kind of function is very customer obsessed. The military is very customer obsessed. My intent at the end of the goal for any business is to help the end customer to make life easier. If the customer that I'm working with or the project that I'm working with doesn't have that same kind of mentality in mind, I assume they're just here for the quick buck. And if that's the intent, it's not a, it's a disingenuous project. It's probably not going to do successful. And if it does, I don't want to be part of it. Um, but in terms of, you know, how would somebody get to me? I look at references. I always have the bare barometer of success of where I say like, hey, if somebody said reach out to me or you found me through you know some channel, you're probably in the right place. I believe that you'll probably be successful simply by the fact that you've been able to reach out to me because I know how hard it is to find the right people to talk to and get people that are actually willing to give you good information, genuine information altogether. Like that's extremely hard, especially with the veteran community. I've had so many veterans reach out to me and say like, Hey, I've been blown off by other veterans, like left and right. And I'm kind of thinking like, I never thought that would happen. I figured all of us were, you know, great people, but we're, we're not all great people. We're just like everybody else in the world. But if somebody has kind of referenced you to me, I know that my circle is small. And if, 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 if you've spoken to them, they're probably a good person. And if you get to me, I know that you're already on the right track because more than likely a person's not going to refer you to me if they don't believe that you're going to be successful either. I appreciate that candor. And so one of the biggest things that I struggled with getting out of the military was, I would say, just calibrating to a, a different ecosystem, right? So uh, working with different types of people who maybe didn't run at the same pace that I did. And, you know, the default uh, button that we used in the military was intensity, right? If we wanted to get something across the finish line, all we got to do as Marines was just go at it harder. And uh, that's not that's not always the best course of action in the civilian world, because quite frankly, it's just not everybody wants to run at that pace. So not knowing your audience and and stepping on it a few times uh, in the wrong environments, you know, coming across as too aggressive, quite frankly, in sales can sometimes work for you. In a lot of cases, when you're not necessarily dealing with sales folks, it can work against you. So I like the way that you had categorized having good information and providing good information from quality folks and using your network as a way to kind of vet people in and vet people out. I liked uh, I like that. That's good. That's good input there. So when it comes to what you're doing now and uh, and some projects that you're working on, what can you talk about and what's the best way for people to support you? The current thing I'm I'm working in is I recently jumped to a new company. It's a a startup called Do It International. I've been here about a month and a half. They actually kind of inadvertently poached me from Amazon. I worked with them as a partner on the Amazon side and just really loved their their uh, value pitch. 
essentially what they do is fill in the gaps for the AWS, GC, or Google platform and Microsoft cloud platforms for customer service, um, engineer optimization, advisory. They're not the, what I say is they're not the Accenture of consultants. You're not going to be able to tell them, hey, we have a project we're working on. We need four guys to build this. They're the McKinsey where they'll come in, they'll evaluate, they'll advise, they'll teach, train, mentor you on what the best practices are and how to get this done fastest. And they'll also give you some optimization tools to kind of help bolster your current environment. Um, so and interestingly, they are 100% at no cost to the customer. All of the cloud platforms currently sponsor us with the intent that if we can build the customer up, the platforms will make their money. Amazon, Google, they assume that if, if I invest into this company, this company's going to scale and grow. They may become a unicorn. We're willing to foot that bill for this time because if they do become a unicorn, that's you know more money on us. And I had plenty of companies that would do you know five, six x during COVID period in the course of a year by using this um, this uh, partner. So it was kind of a no brainer when it was an opportunity for me to take a, a bigger role, bigger responsibility. I joined them and said, hey, I have a lot of contacts at AWS. I understand the partner side of AWS, and I can learn the partner side of your company. I also understand the products. I'm you know, solutions architect certified at AWS, which is kind of like you know, graduating as a generator mechanic you know, for engineer school from the Army. I'm well-versed in kind of a multi-range of things to kind of help out. So they actually said, like, hey, we need a person to essentially run AWS East Coast and you're one of the best partners that we've worked with at AWS, so we'd love to have you over here. So I, I switched over. Very cool. That's, I mean, that's that's a great success. It, it, it's a great segue, so to speak, into what's coming next, right? It, what I like about your story and some of the things that I hear you talking about is is it sounds as if the uh, the possibilities are endless. And, and the example that I'd like to use is AWS didn't have the 400 products or 200 some odd products that they have available now, right? They They didn't have that. 20 years ago, right? They've been able to grow organically by providing services to customers. Different customers need different things. And so you have the ability to to partner or hit your wagon, so to speak, alongside and grow along uh, grow along with them. So that's kudos to you, man. That's, that's good stuff right there. I guess I could kind of give a quick expound on that as kind of my, again, thought philosophy on how I end up different places. I have no roadmap. I have no five-year plan. A lot of people are like, what's your five-year plan? Where do you see yourself ending up? I, I don't really think that way. I think of things and opportunities, and I am very good at understanding new opportunities, seeing new opportunities, and evaluating those opportunities. And I just base my choices in life based on like where is the next opportunity for me to you know do something relevant or do something worthwhile. So I had actually had no thought of this company in the beginning, but after reviewing a lot of stuff, I said, hey, I can make a difference here. And in the large scope, me being able to work with startups from, you know, the smallest to the biggest opens me up to a lot of contacts to meet people at, you know, the Warby Parkers, the, the Ubers of the world kind of in their infancy, where I can further possibly look at like a private equity line or something like that down the road. So that's like a very open-ended goal. But in terms of saying like, don't bottleneck yourself, you know, anybody listening out there, don't bottleneck yourself and saying like, I want to be on this path, be very flexible and, you know, take opportunities that come to you. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's that's good input. It's also important to have a group of people around you communicating with you and giving you input all the time. What Dallaire has uh, has made himself available, you know, not just for myself but other circles that we run in. So you know, he's a he's a great sounding board, a good person to connect with. So if somebody wanted to connect with you, how would they do so? Hundred percent LinkedIn. 
There you go. I mean, if you if you can see my name at the bottom of the screen, there's only one dollar pretty much in America on LinkedIn. Very easy to find me. Um, I, I'm currently wearing a shift shirt. I'm not associated with shift, you know, as an employer or anything, but uh, if you're familiar with uh, Sean at shift, I'm familiar with everybody at the shift side also. And I'm very easy to find within any veteran network, I'd say. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for taking some time sharing with uh, sharing with our audience uh, the running that you had with the guy who stole a box a box of ammo from you. And thank you for using good judgment on uh, on not pursuing that forty dollars mistake that that guy was making. So, uh, with that, anything else you want to leave these folks with? Kind of a, a token that I always say for anybody listening that's still in the military or around the way of getting out. I always just say, save your money. Like if you have any inklings of getting out of the military, just start pocketing as much cash as possible. And I don't say that, you know, so you can start a, a business or anything necessarily, but as you start that job search, you're going to need some way to stay afloat. And I mean, I'm fortunate. I don't have a family. I don't have any kids or a wife or anything at the moment. So I could afford to spend, you know, six months dedicated of, of studying, of, you know, talking to people, researching a lot of stuff before pulling the trigger on exactly what I wanted. But I have plenty of friends that weren't as fortunate and had to take, you know, jobs, period, when they got out of the military because they had to make ends meet. And I tell people, this, if you have money saved up, you can afford to not take the first offer that's given to you because that first offer might not be the best offer. You know, I, I went through 100 phone calls, you know, probably two, 24 or so um, interviews, maybe a dozen on-site interviews and declined half of those great offers. I've declined them because they just truly weren't what I wanted as a whole. But if I was in a situation where I needed to have, you know, the income coming back in, I would have probably have taken one of those jobs. And because I didn't have to, I feel like I was fortunate enough to, you know, set myself up in the AWS, get a great start, great pivot and have kind of a, a, a name brand plus experience under me to pivot and bounce into the next career choice. So, that's kind of my only token is save your money so you can afford to float as you're searching jobs and as you study. Well, that's good stuff right there. Well, it's good. It's good because you're sharing the experience. It's not something that you heard. It's not something that you just read. You know, you, it was your experience. And so that's what I like about your story, my friend. So I always appreciate your willingness to, to share. I also appreciate your willingness to keep it real with your uh, with the mistakes that you made. So a lot to learn from the things that you said. For those of you like listening to Knucklehead, listen, we come at you every Tuesday. Uh, if we haven't been coming at you on Tuesday, just wait. The next Tuesday will come around. Another episode will hit you upside the head. So if you're not subscribed, subscribe. You know, smash that uh, smash that subscribe button. Go ahead and leave a review. I'd love to hear what you have to say. If you want to reach out to Dallaire, he told you exactly how to get in touch with him. And I guess with that, just don't be a bait about the process. Remember, you're going to get smacked in the mouth. You're not made of glass. Get up and get you some wins, and you'll be all right. So, Dallaire, I appreciate you, man. Uh, anything else? Don't be afraid to message people. I think even even though there will be people that are gonna kind of just shut you down or kind of ignore you, don't be afraid to send out a hundred messages to a hundred different people. You never know when one of those people is gonna be the person that you end up, you know, on a podcast with. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I appreciate that. So with that, we're wrapped. Have a good rest of the day, guys. We'll see you. Take care. <laughs>